Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So there was a police-involved shooting yesterday on the south side in the Grand Crossing neighborhood. Police rolled up on an individual who was on foot, stopped him, he fled, they gave chase, he opened fire on police, they returned fire, he was shot and killed, one police officer was wounded, thankfully. Shot uh, in the arm. Yeah, thankfully not a mortal injury. And three fi- three police officers fired on this suspect. And this was uh, what uh, newly minted... Chicago Police Superintendent Larry Snelling had to say in part about the incident after getting the facts as we quickly just provided them. Here's what he had to say about, um, well, about Chicago. Oh, okay. There is a lack of respect for law enforcement at this time, um, and we see it every single day, but there's a lack of respect right now for life in general, and we need to start taking a closer look at the, the, the violent actors that we have out here um, robbing individuals who are shooting young children. We have children being shot in this city right now. And it's high time that we stood up and, st- and stood up against these violent offenders, especially these repeat offenders. So when you know that our officers are in danger and our officers are trained to deal with these types of events, then... What are our citizens going to do when they face that same level of danger? So it's important for us to understand. It's important for us to understand that we have to stand up and fight against this type of criminal behavior and this type of violent behavior in our city. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You can also reach us on our text line, which is up and running this morning. Six four six three six. Type in D A. Then a comment. Uh, nothing that uh, Chief Snelling said there is particularly new. Certainly not for Chicago. Lack of respect for law enforcement. The uh, violence. Kids being killed. It's just not. Sorry to say that, but it's true. But um, it did get me thinking. The lack of respect for law enforcement right now. Um, You know, we talk about uh, this uh, push from some quarters for COVID amnesty. Yeah. Let's just, uh, we did the best we could, given the information we had at the time. Let's stop pointing fingers. Let's not be in the business of who did what or said what about whom. Let's just move on in uh, brotherhood and put this ugliness behind us. And to that I say no. Well, what about... um, Defund the police amnesty. Because that's gone away, too. 
for the most part, much like all the COVID hysteria, for the most part, has gone away. So what about defund the police amnesty? Should the groups and the individuals, not just the ones who committed acts of violence, who laid siege to Chicago and most other major cities in America, um, but, but those like BLM Brandon, who were strong proponents of defunding the police and the Frankly, the political power structure in the city of Chicago and Cook County. Big fans of defund the police. Kim Fox, Tony Parkwinkle. Yeah, that whole group. Yeah, I remember that. What, what, should, what about defund the police amnesty? Why aren't, why aren't we talking about that? It because didn't work that's for a them. Well, that's, that's, essentially what they're, that's essentially what they're doing. They're saying they're putting this behind us. They're memory holding what they said and did over the last three years. And pretending like that never happened. Remember uh, BLM Brandon during the mayoral race? That was a viewpoint. I didn't say it was my viewpoint. No, he's just uh, he's just providing information about the great expanse of viewpoints that exist out in the public. No, it was his viewpoint. Was of course his... it was. God, of course so it was. Ridiculous. So, so what about that? Should we provide amnesty for the defund the police and, frankly, defund ICE crew? Nobody's saying that anymore. And yet, I don't think we're doing a good enough job, including on this show, reminding people of all that was said, all that was advanced by these same people, many of these same people in positions of authority over the last three years. Because let me tell you what can happen in this uh, this Grand Crossing shooting. Uh, stop the guy on foot. He fled they chased uh-huh. you know there's a copa investigation of course there is anytime there's a police involved shooting yeah didn't he he jumped out of a car <clears throat> looked shot back at the officers a gun was recovered from the scene and they gave chase and jumped out of a car shot, who jumped out him? of a car i thought he jumped out of a car and that's not what snelling said he was on foot well yeah when then they, he was he on was, foot and he was on foot when they stopped him right and because and then he, he and they were chasing him because he fired a weapon at them well regardless um, cope investigation. Oh, it's going to take it. It just takes one defund the policer who no longer operates under the banner defund the police, but has the same viewpoint. Just takes one to say, why were they giving chase? That uh, 37 year old who was shot and killed would be alive today if the Chicago police had abided the restriction on giving chase. They shouldn't have given chase. It led to a firefight in which an officer was injured and the suspect was killed. Suspect would be alive today and the officer would not have been injured if they would have just followed the policy to not give chase. And now let's find out who what the officer who shot and killed him. I know three officers fired. Any of them white? Was the uh, suspect who was killed? Was he black? I know they just released his name, 37-year-old. Transa Campbell. My questions are the operative ones. His name is not. So that's what it just takes one. It just takes one. One per one member of the Jackson family. One Al Sharpton wannabe in the city. One Ben Crump. To say, uh, I'm calling foul here. One member of COPA's board of mystics. To say, I'm calling foul here. Discipline those officers for giving chase. God, this, this happened is... in broad daylight. It, I mean, at noon, 
right next to a few blocks away from a school. This is why we don't give. Uh, maybe, you know, maybe that will uh, will absolve them. Say, look, if we didn't give chase, there was a better way to do this than to for it to wind up in a gunfight. Probably won't happen here because of how uh, politically sensitive, you know, the antennae are uh, politically sensitive. These race hustlers are. They know the spots to pick where they can really inflame the passions. This one probably doesn't set up as neatly for them as others, but they're lurking to do the same thing. And we've given them a pass on what they've done over the last, as I said, three years in pushing for the defunding of police that had real consequences in big cities in America. And by the way, that also includes these uh, lily-livered Republicans like uh, former House super minority hack Jim Durkin, who ran out to the uh, Black Lives Matter protests in places like Western Springs when it was au courant to do so. Remember Mitt Romney did the same thing in D.C.? Yeah, I was wondering if they were at the Palestinian uh, march on Saturday. I was looking for Mitt Romney in there. Yeah, the the defund the police, Black Lives Matter apologists. Don't come after me. I'll, I'll show up to your rally. And the destruction they wrought at the time that carries forward to today, what Larry Selling was talking about, the lack of respect for law enforcement. Well, we, the, the, you know, at best, we get sort of their unnecessary evil. That's not the same thing as having the back of police. Dan and Palos Heights are on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, no, no amnesty at all for these people. Thomas Sowell always said that uh, academics and elitists, they never pay the price for their bad ideas. No amnesty for me. Thanks for the call, Dan. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Hey, business owners, is your business and money in good hands? Does your bank invest in your success? Hi, Mike Gallagher here, letting you know that when you need a relationship bank, Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. I love these guys. Not only do they have expansive industry experience, a strong financial track record, but they're also highly capitalized for strategic growth. That's so important. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. They know what it means to grow a business by designing solutions that are right for you and only you. These are real people. They're ready to help. So reach out to my friends at Signature Bank. Make the call today, 773-467-5630, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at signaturebank.bank. That's signaturebank.bank. Your business could be Signature Bank's next success story. Go online, signaturebank.bank. Member FDIC, equal housing lender. Signature Bank. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I just want to develop this uh, question about defund the police and abolish ICE amnesty a little bit more. I'll give you an example of what I mean when I say rejecting calls that are not being made, but rejecting what our experts, our betters, and some of our erstwhile friends said and did over the last three years. Okay. Give me an example of uh, what that looks like. 
Ted Cruz had the occasion to query a federal district court nominee advanced by the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, President Biden. Uh, her name is Sarah French Russell. She's a law professor at Quinnipiac and uh, again, a nominee for the federal bench. So she has to go through Senate Judiciary and then through the full Senate for confirmation. Yeah, Probably will happen despite what you're about to hear. But you know, maybe maybe you can peel off a, a mansion and a cinema. I don't know if she saw this coming. Um. Ted Cruz, so you you may not be asking for it because you don't want to draw attention to the fact that you were a proponent of defunding the police, of decarcerating criminals, and also, too, like, for example, the social Spice Girls of abolishing ICE. You don't want to draw attention to that's what you were saying three years ago when it was fashionable and safer to say. You're not saying it now, but we need to remember. Ted Cruz um, brought up a letter that uh, Sarah French Russell, the good professor who hails from Connecticut, wrote to Connecticut, Connecticut Governor Ned Lamont in, three years ago in 2020. This letter begins with the undersigned organizations and individuals call on Governor Lamont to act immediately to protect the lives of incarcerated people in our state. Three urgent steps are needed. The immediate release of as many people in custody as possible, to a moratorium on new admissions into jails and prisons. Do you think a moratorium on, on new admissions into jails and prisons, is, is that uh, a policy you support? So, Senator, um, again, I don't have the letter in front of me to understand the context, but um, I know there were efforts to reduce new admissions, but there are obviously some people who would present a public safety risk. So- mm-hmm. Doesn't remember the letter that she signed yeah. three years ago. Mm-hmm. It seemed sure. these are um, she's she uh, supposedly uh, her uh, expertise in the law is related to criminology and penology. And uh, so you don't well, forgetting the letter for a second. What's your view? You don't remember what your view is. You don't remember signing a letter that uh, detailed your views at this critical moment? It was urgent enough that you signed this letter calling on the governor to empty the prisons, but you don't recall it all. Sure you don't. More from the letter. The second page, we call upon Governor Lamont, the state of Connecticut and all Connecticut jurisdictions to, one, immediately release to the maximum extent possible people incarcerated pre-trial and post-conviction. We recognize that jails and prisons are not safe and do not promote well-being for anyone. The global COVID-19 pandemic is throwing into sharp relief the untenable size of our penal system and the need for sustained action to shrink its scale, size, and scope. This next sentence is underlined. We outline below a few considerations to initiate state action and emphasize they do not preclude the release of groups not explicitly discussed in this letter. Do you think it was a good idea to, as this letter says, quote, immediately release to the maximum extent possible people incarcerated pre-trial and post-conviction? So, Senator, I'd want to understand the context around extent possible. It's a letter um, you signed, so you know the context. So she's Tony Preckwinkle. She, uh, her focus, COVID, just a convenient backdrop, is to permanently reduce the size of the prison population. Uh, 
And I don't have a magic number for the prison population. No one should. The prison population should be reflective of people who've committed imprisonable offenses. No more and no fewer. But that's not her position because she's an ideologue who wants to sit on the federal bench. This is scary. (laughs) This is a, a moment where you can reckon with people who are defund the police, decarcerate the prisons, abolish ICE. Because usually they they hold all three positions. They're anti-law enforcement. People can't be illegal. There should be no benefits to being a citizen. The system is systemically racist, so there's a disproportionate percentage of our prison population that's minority, thus open the doors. This is the depth of their thinking. So uh, in summary from Cruz... Empty the prisons, moratorium on new prisoners, and this from a law professor who seeks an appointment to the federal bench, calling on the governor of a state to impose his will on the feds. That's not remotely this letter. All right, the next page. You also call on the governor to do this, and this is a quote. Declare a moratorium on incarceration. Governor Lamont should issue an executive order to direct the state attorney's offices and law enforcement entities, including town and city police departments, and any federal law enforcement entity operating within the state to immediately cease adding to the incarcerated population given the high risk posed by population increase, both to those already incarcerated and to those entering correctional facilities. Public officials with authority to set bail, including judges, and you're nominated to be a judge, bail staff and police officers should maximize release on personal recognizance. Do you think it is a good idea to declare a moratorium on incarceration and to say in Connecticut, we are no longer arresting anybody because that's what your letter says? So, Senator, um, as I heard it, it it was urging... um, uh, a um, sort of to the extent possible. And I guess, you know, my view at that time with the pandemic is, and I know that the process... It doesn't say to the extent possible. It says all. And, and, and let me ask you, you're a law professor. You signed a letter asking the governor of the state of Connecticut to issue an executive order ordering federal law enforcement to cease adding to the incarcerated population in the state. Is there any plausible constitutional justification for a governor ordering the feds, you are no longer allowed to incarcerate anyone in our state. Um, I would assume, Senator, that was a reference to using state state no, facilities. Say that. Um, so again, Senator, um, I think that it, <laughs> this appears to be a letter that was was. So lots of the... people signed something kooky, but lots of people haven't been nominated to be a judge. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred Turnkey Dapro answer line six four six three six D A Turnkey Dapro text line. She has no recollection of that letter, Senator, and to the extent that she's reacting to the portions you've read, here's what I meant. Well, it doesn't say that. Well, here's what I think I was thinking. Well, it doesn't say that on the letter. You're a law professor. You choose your words carefully, right? You're very specific about what you believe and the basis on what you. Uh, on what you be- uh, the basis uh, upon which you believe it. Uh, well, Senator, uh, 
And then she goes into the, the default position. Well, you know, as a judge, I would certainly faithfully, uh, in, blah, blah, blah. faithfully apply the laws of the land. I don't believe that, do you? No, but you the point— she's he, very judicious? The point here is this is an opportunity. I, I, I wish Republicans would build upon what Ted Cruz here has done and say this is an opportunity to tell the defund the police, decarcerate the criminals— Abolish ICE ideologues, elitist ideologues around the country that we remember. You're not getting away with what you did and said, what you advocated for, what you served as an apologist for over the last three years. You're not getting away with it. Oh, I'll I'll, uh, enforce the laws of the land now. We don't believe you. And we have no reason to. We know who you are. You've already demonstrated to us. In writing, in this case, you need to make an example of somebody. How many times have we talked about that with respect to COVID? Who is going to be held accountable? How many times have we talked about that with respect to, oh, my gosh, pick an issue, any issue, the Russian collusion oaks? Who is going to be held accountable at a shot caller level that inspires any confidence that there's accountability left in our politics? That inspires any confidence that the Republican Party will bring accountability where it has the power to do so. There needs to be a moment. There needs to be somebody that is made a legitimate, legitimate emphasis example of based on their conduct. This seems to me as good a place to start as any. The federal district court nominee. Three one two six four two fifty six hundred turnkey dot pro answer line Joe in Naperville. You're on Chicago's Morning Answer. Yeah, you know, is it just me or does anybody else see the hypocrisy that the left always has to lie about what their position is and what they want to do? They never tell the truth. It's always a lie and a cover up because the ends justify the means to these morons, no matter what it is. Thanks for the call, Joe. Well, and also because a lot of their actual beliefs are not particularly popular or sellable. You know, this is, so it's it's one thing for Antifa or Black Lives Matter to be out saying the things that this law professor said. It's another thing to say it, and then, as uh, Ted Cruz said, seek a seat on the federal bench, isn't it? And this is why they have to couch who they are, provide context or just just do a complete 180 uh, during a confirmation hearing to try to distance themselves from who they actually are. How many times have we seen that play out? Many. Uh, George in Naperville. Yeah, Dan, we can't even get accountability for the virus. Well, I mean, this is what this is my point. But it is interesting. I just to I mean, I don't want to beat this drum too hardly, but it is interesting. There were actual calls for COVID amnesty from COVIDians. There are no calls for defund the police amnesty or for abolish ICE amnesty. Why is that? From the same people. You know, there's a lot. The the COVIDians and the defund the police abolish ICE, it's the Venn diagram, which uh, Kamala Harris loves, is almost a perfect circle. So, But why no calls from from uh, the Black Lives Matter, uh, Antifa, defund, abolish, decarcerate folks. Why no calls for amnesty? Why do you think? 
Why aren't they asking? Some Covidians are asking. Forget about it. Well, that's part of it, I think. Yeah. yeah. Or they don't. They don't look like they were wrong. They are asking for amnesty. Yeah. Because I think part of the Covidians who are asking for amnesty know that, you know what? Maybe they were right, but that other group's not going to ever admit that or ask well, for it. Right. I think I think part of it is uh, we don't want to accentuate that right now. We don't want to remind people. I think that's definitely part of it. The other part of it is they haven't changed their views. Oh, that, that too. Some Covidians Very have so, some Covidians have at least modulated their views if they haven't changed it altogether. Now, this is not to say that sort of the underlying safetyist, uh, you know, cult uh, is not operating from the same foundation. But I just find that lack of um, even feigned contrition. That's I find that very interesting. That's it's absence from defund and abolish. I mean, this was the zeitgeist of the day as much as covid at the height of 2020. And we've allowed it to dissipate without holding people like the good law professor, uh, Miss Russell French, accountable. Maybe. Maybe there's an opportunity there. Just in terms of uh, something else, too, to remind people of what this produced. Defund, decarcerate, abolish. What it produced. And let's get beyond statistics. Just a single story, a Chicago story. Because as Chief Snelling said in reaction to that cop who was shot pursuing a suspect yesterday on the south side, uh, there's no respect for law enforcement. Well, no respect for law enforcement was at its apex in 2020. It may have dissipated a little bit as Black Lives Matter defund, decarcerate, abolish has gotten quieter, but it's not materially changed. Not among the activist set. Not among the base of the Democrat Socialist Party, not among the power structure in Chicago and Illinois and these criminally insane states. Criminally insane thanks to their electorate. Henry Graham. Is a 49 year old who is accused of punching a man on the mag mile, causing him to fall to the pavement, strike his head and eventually die. The um, individual, you may remember this, uh, was a uh, 49-year-old River North resident and longtime employee of Northern Trust. His name is Russ Long. Carrying a shopping bag as he passed the uh, Cartier store on uh, the Mag Mile at about 4 in the afternoon. Witnesses saw the assailant approach Russ Long, quickly from behind without saying a word. He twisted his torso back, then sprung it forward, plowing his fist in the back of Long's head. Long fell forward, striking his head on the pavement. As Long was bleeding on the ground, the assailant sat down on a nearby fire hydrant and stared at him for about five minutes. Dear Lord. He walked away upon hearing sirens in the distance. Two witnesses followed him until they crossed paths with the Chicago police unit. Officers detained the assailant. He admitted to hitting Long and knocking him unconscious. 
the police let him go. Why? Four days later, Long's friends tried in vain to get the police department to file a report about the attack. Eventually, on July 2nd, a friend of Long's called 911 from his hospital bedside, asked for an officer to come to Northwestern to take a report. Once again, the city's call taker refused to send an officer because Long could not speak, but eventually relented and dispatched a car. Only then did uh, CPD begin the process of documenting and investing what ha- investigating what happened to Long, who died of his injuries 10 days later. The autopsy showed severe injuries. Uh, his frontal bone and the base of his skull were fractured. Uh, in a uh, written proffer from the state's attorney's office, significant force would have been required to inflict such injuries. Chicago police arrested Graham at Cook County Jail on October 25th. He again admitted to hitting Long, then he demonstrated how he did it. Between the time Chicago cops released the assailant minutes after the attack to the filing of murder charges last week, he'd been arrested six more times. July 9th, August 4th, throwing a bottle of gin through an Evanston store window. August 16th, charged with pushing a 14-year-old girl in the chest, causing her to fall over a bench. Uh, September 22nd, charged with four felony counts of aggravated battery to police officers. October 3rd, arrested for striking a Lakeview man with a broomstick outside Wrigley Field. And that's just in the last six months. You go back to a long litany of arrests similar over many years. So it's a failure of the criminal justice system writ large. And the point here is uh, the police, uh, in my estimation, didn't do their job here. But when you have uh, a prosecutor that isn't interested in prosecuting, then you create a culture where law enforcement writ large throws up its hands. And uh, unless it is uh, you know, imminent threat to the public, Sometimes they're slow to act when they shouldn't have been. But 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 to and to that point, how many times was this guy released before finally they put together the pieces of the murder of Russ Long and arrested him for murder, such that now maybe he'll be off the streets, though he should have been off the streets years ago and years before he ever ran into Russ Long. So tell me again about forgetting the defund the police, decarcerate the criminals, abolish ICE, law enforcement officials, politicians, activists. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Business owners, now's the time for your business to make the move to a locally owned business bank. Hi, Mike Gallagher here to let you know that you don't have to look far. Signature Bank was founded in Chicago with a simple mission to help companies like yours grow, succeed, and thrive. Their decisions are made locally by a terrific team that knows your name, cares about your business, and invests in your success. That's why Signature Bank is my bank. I'm a customer. As business owners, they knew that local family-owned businesses were not getting the help they needed or deserved. 
So I invite you to reach out to my friends at Signature Bank today. Write the number down. Remember this phone number, Signature Bank, 773-467-5630. And learn all about this great bank, 773-467-5630. Or visit them online at SignatureBank.Bank. That's SignatureBank.Bank. Signature Bank makes commercial banking personal. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So former President Trump uh, testified in New York City civil trial being presided over by Judge Torquemada. Uh, here's what he had to say before he testified yesterday. And it's a terrible, terrible thing. These are political operatives that I'm going to be dealing with right now. Uh, you have a racist attorney general who made some terrible statements, and we just see some more that came over the wires today. Uh, it's a very sad situation for our country. We shouldn't have this. This is for third world countries. And it's very unfair. It's very unfair. But in the meantime, the people of the country understand it, they see it, and they don't like it. They don't like it, because it's uh, political warfare, as you would call it, or political lawfare. Another name, they got a lot of names for it, but usually it takes place in third world countries and banana republics. And nobody's ever seen that. To this extent, we've never seen it here. Well, he, he's right. Literally, no one has ever seen a case like this. Yeah, because this Literally. is a political hit job. That's what this is. This isn't a case. It's unprecedented to use this uh, law that this dubiously constructed law passed uh, by the General Assembly in the state of New York in a case where there are no victims. But it's being done. Uh, After uh, his spirited testimony, which we'll get to in a second, here's how. I'm sure you've heard that part about it. That was the blaring, Those were the blaring headlines about the sparring with uh, Judge Torquemada. But here's what Trump had to say after he testified. As usual, channeling Norman Vincent Peale, accentuating the positive. Everything's great. Everything went beautifully. I think it went very well. I think you were there and you listened and you see what scam this is. This is a case that should have never been brought. It's a case that should be dismissed immediately. The fraud was on behalf of the court. The court was uh, the fraudster in this case. They made references to assets that were very valuable, and they said uh, they had no idea. They had no idea what the numbers were when they said $18 million for Mar-a-Lago, and it's 50 to 100 times that amount by any estimation. Uh, It's a terrible thing that's happened here. We're taking days and days and weeks and weeks, and it goes on, and then you look at the outside world and what's happening, but of course they're getting their wish because I don't have to be here for the most part, but I sort of do have to be here because I want to be here because it's a scam and this is a case that should have never been brought and it's a case that now should be dismissed. The court is the fraudster here. 312-642-5600, turnkey depro answer line, 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. I mean, they want to have him and his family stop doing business in New York. Yeah. Among other things, paying a fine 
in the millions of dollars. And- well, the, the, the fines, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the top line is what you just said, which is to essentially bar the Trump organization from a business in New York State. It's like they're uh, stripping of him of his constitutional rights. He, he's an American citizen. He's one of us. And he has a business. Uh, Letitia James, she's the attorney general. She had this to say after court yesterday. He rambled. He hurled insults. Um, but we expected that. At the end of the day, the documentary evidence, evidence demonstrated that, in fact, he falsely inflated his assets to basically enrich himself and his family. He continued to persistently engage in fraud. Um, the numbers don't lie. Trump obviously can engage in all of these distractions, and that what is what he, exactly what he did, what he committed on the stand today, engaged, engaging in distractions and engaging in name-calling. Um, but I will not be bullied. I will not be harassed. This case will go I'm on. I'm a victim. I'm a victim. <laughs> Look at me. That's my favorite part. The case will go on. No, I will not be bullied. I will not be harassed. You're the state's She's- attorney general. You're the one with police power in this case, as you're demonstrating by bringing this case in the first place. I will not be bullied. I will not be harassed. It's exactly what you said. Always. uh, Let me figure a way how the state attorney general who initiated this case and has police power can be the victim here. And she's the one who said during her campaign, oh, I'm going to take him down. She boasted about that. She's caught on camera saying it. Here she said it. I say one name. Donald Trump. That should motivate you. Will you, will you sue him for us? Oh, we're going to definitely sue him. We're going to be a real pain in the We're going to be a real pain in the keister. That was 2018. Uh-huh. Um, Jonathan Turley, George Washington University law professor. Uh, had He's this, my new David Gergen. Yeah, I had this to say about uh, yesterday's proceedings and this trial uh, more generally. Uh, He also provided a little reminder about Letitia James that I had forgotten. You'll enjoy it. Well, I could find no case anywhere like this. And part of the problem is the underlying law, which doesn't require any victim. It doesn't require anyone to lose money. You know, the banks were not complaining. They apparently made money. Uh, But that doesn't matter. And you have the AG, James, who ran on being a political activist. She ran on saying that she would bag Trump for anything. You know, this is the same attorney general that sought to dissolve the National Rifle Association. That was one of her other big efforts. And now she's trying to ban Trump from doing business in New York. And a lot of New Yorkers love it. You know, this crosses the line from law to entertainment. But it should be concerning for people uh, because it does appear that this is a case uniquely uh, created for Trump under a law that hasn't been used in the same way against others. Mm. So it's a simple test. I mean, it should be obvious what the test is, but it's just a simple test for those who are cheering on uh, these sorts of uh, inquisitions masquerading as uh, courts of law presided over by this uh, what they call Supreme Court judge in in New York. It's a circuit court judge in Illinois. That's the analog. Simple test. If it was somebody that you liked who uh, and whose politics you agreed with, who was a real estate developer in New York mm-hmm. and was being subjected to the same prosecution 
absent victims, as Jonathan Turley just mentioned. What would your view be? And you had a prosecutor. I mean, you know, all the facts otherwise are the same. You had a prosecutor who ran on going after your friend. She committed to suing him for what? We'll find we'll figure it out. Yeah, I'll find something basically is what she was saying. So for someone you liked, what would your reaction be? That seems to me the obvious challenge to uh, the people who uh, hate Trump more than they love this country and are cheering these sorts of sham proceedings on. And then just think about the basic allegation is that he inflated the value of his assets. Right. And his own financial statement, there's a disclaimer in them. You know, it's just baffles me that it got to this point. Well, well, again, um, you know, inflating your assets or getting um, uh, optimistic appraisals in New York City real estate. Well, you're going to have to build bigger jails because all the real estate developers are going to them. Thank you. Or 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 you're going to have to stop doing developments in New York City and New York State because they're all going to be out of business in this case, since jail's not on the table, but they're all going to be barred from doing business uh, uh, per that standard. I mean, again, the Turley point that's been made, there is not precedent for a case like this to be brought. And then they're testing, they're calling his children to testify. And Ivanka Trump is going to testify tomorrow. Well, of course they're calling him. They're principals in the company. I, know, um, I mean, this is specifically about Eric, specifically names Eric and Don, and Jr. Don Jr. Right, but why bring Ivanka into this? Because she's a principal of the organi- of the company, and I'll she's a beneficiary. Leave her, leave her alone. Well, I mean, the, the whole <laughs> the whole thing is ridiculous. But I mean, it's obvious why they're doing it. Greg and Schomburg. Hey, Dan and Amy. Amy, you, from the standpoint of having covered a lot of trials, and Dan, you, from a legal standpoint, given what Turley just has talked about, where this is totally unprecedented, and given the fact that um, any kind of bank or any kind of insurance firm does their own appraisals, the the client does not do the appraisals, folks. You turn Mm -hmm. it in, and they have a fiduciary relationship to their investors to go and do that appraisal. So given all of that, given, bottom line, none of the facts of this case make any sense in any way, shape, or form. My question to both of you is, what's going on behind the scenes that as soon as he's found guilty, how soon can this be overturned? Well, I mean, you... Conversations that are going on. Why? There's. I don't think there's any conversations going on except maybe with respect to Trump's lawyers and um, uh, and preparing the appeal while this is playing itself out. Since uh, Judge Torquemada has already uh, made his decision clear right. before any testimony was offered, so I, I, I don't. They can't anticipate anything's going to change his mind given what he's so indicated. So you're preparing the appeal to appeal it uh, post haste and to enjoin the judge's decision until an appeal can be heard so that the Trump organization can continue to do business in the New York in New York state pending appeal. That's what I suspect is happening. Uh, Rich on the north on Indian Head Park. Hey, Rich. Hi, Rich. Good morning. Good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. Dan, I just, uh, just what you said, the judge has already found him uh, 
uh, guilty of fraud. So why is this trial still going on? It doesn't make any sense that it's still going on. And then when he tries to answer uh, questions, he wants to cut him off. What's that all about? I mean, I don't understand why a person that's on trial, that's the defendant, can't defend himself. Why does this judge keep cutting him off and telling him to limit his answers and telling his lawyer to uh, control uh, her client? Thanks. Thanks for the call, Rich. Well, because it's uh, it's a process to justify the outcome. It's pro- you know they're going through the motions to justify a preordained outcome that the judge has already indicated. That's my sense of it. I mean, this is a sort of what um, Trump's attorney Alina Haba had to say in her uh, post court rant yesterday that went viral. Coming from the judge who has already predetermined that my client committed fraud before we even walked into this courtroom. I'm not here to hear what he has to say. Then why exactly am I being paid as an attorney and why exactly are taxpayer dollars being used in this courtroom? The answer is very clear. Because Ms. James wants to stand right here like she did this morning and call my client a liar, call the company fraudulent, and make a name for herself. She said this morning that the numbers don't lie and they won't lie in this case. Well, Miss James, I have a message for you. The numbers didn't lie when you ran for governor and that's why you dropped out. And the numbers don't lie when President Trump runs for office in 2024. And those numbers are loud and clear. This country is falling apart. And if we don't stop corruption, in courtrooms where attorneys are gagged, where attorneys are not allowed to say what they need to say to protect their clients' interests. It doesn't matter what your politics are. Everyone has a right in this country to get up and put a defense. I don't care who you are. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can put objections on the record. You have a right to hire a lawyer who can stand up and say something when they see something wrong. But I was told to sit down today. I was yelled at, and I've had a judge who is unhinged slamming a table. Let me be very clear, I don't tolerate that in my life. I'm not gonna tolerate it here. And you know what, you shouldn't either. Because not every American citizen gets a camera and a microphone. And what I'm seeing is such a demise of American judicial system and democracy. Miss James came out this morning and said that she knew Mr. Trump, and she always calls him Mr. Trump because it kills her that he was the president. But the 45th president of this country, one of the best presidents we've had, has built a great company. It's worth a ton more than that statement of financial condition. And she doesn't know how to get out of it because her politics won't allow her. Uh, That's her finest moment there. Alina Haba saying uh, they've got nothing but their politics in this case. Right. They don't. But that's probably going to be enough. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. I'm going to go back to uh, what Alina Hava, Trump's attorney, 
in the civil case in New York City that's playing out had to say after court yesterday and after Trump's testimony about uh, Letitia James and, uh, well, and uh, uh, the Honorable Judge Torquemada presiding over the trial. They've got nothing but their politics. She's got nothing but her Soros backing, which we discovered recently. And I am sick and tired of seeing it. Pay attention, America. Pay attention. Because when you're in court one of these days and you don't have a lawyer that has a microphone and you don't have a lawyer that can go on TV and you've got judges gagging them, what are you going to do? We need to fix this country and we need to stop what is happening in this courtroom. President Trump is worth a lot more and she wasn't ready for it. She doesn't understand it. And before she rushed to judgment, she should have thought about attacking somebody with over 50 years of real estate expertise who changed single-handedly the skyline of New York City. She picked the wrong person and her politics will fail for it. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined. And by, and by the way, I better be careful on uh, uh, name calling in the direction of the judge. I, I don't want to be hit with a gag order, fined ten thousand uh, dollars. William Jacobson is a clinical professor of law, director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law School. He's also the founder of LegalInsurrection.com, president of the Legal Insurrection Pro, uh, Legal Insurrection Foundation as well. Professor Jacobson, thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me on. Um, so, I mean, just now that we've got uh, Trump's testimony um, uh, completed, the you know your latest and greatest handle on this prosecution by Letitia James, I I suspect it hasn't changed terribly much. No, it really hasn't. It was abusive when it started. It was disgraceful. She's a disgrace for using her office for political purposes. She announced when she ran for office that. Um, she was going to get Donald Trump and his family. She really has sullied the office. If he committed a crime or if he committed a civil offense, it could have been handled in the normal fashion. But she's the one who decided to make it all political. And it's a travesty. It really is a travesty. I think anybody doing business in the state of New York, and I work in the state of New York at Cornell, needs to be worried about what has happened to the uh, attorney general's office that if you are on the wrong side of politics, you can be targeted. So I think the whole thing's disgraceful. The way she's been making public statements throughout this trial, essentially trying to taunt Trump uh, in public with her press, with her video releases, I think the whole thing is a disgrace. And I think the judges handled it extremely poorly. I think that he should have heard testimony. He should have heard all the evidence before he ruled against Trump. What we're going through now is not actually the liability phase. Trump's already been found liable. Right. They're just now it's just remedy. How how badly are they going to damage him? The whole thing is ludicrous and it's really shameful. The um, uh, relief that Trump has, we were talking about this before you came on. The, the suggestion that okay, well, uh, we know what's going to happen here. We just again don't know the extent of the punishment to be imposed, as you just said. Um, then he can appeal that decision, but you can anticipate the courts in New York will rubber stamp this decision. Maybe you can't, but let's say you can. Does he have relief anywhere else? Do you see an angle for him to challenge the underlying constitutionality of the law under which he's being uh, tried civilly uh, and make like a, a fifth, 14th Amendment claim to get into federal court and try to get all, this all the way to the Supreme Court? It doesn't seem to me there's much 
chance of that or certainly no chance of an expedited appeal at the Supreme Court level. But people are thinking about this in the context of the presidential election and seeing if that changes anything in terms of his chances for relief at the federal level if he can't get it at the state level. Yeah, I I don't see that happening soon. I think he's going to have to exhaust his state appeals. And there, mm-hmm. in New York State, there are two levels of appeals. Um, so he's in the state Supreme Court now, which, oddly enough, is the lowest court in New York, unlike right. most states. Right. Uh, and the New York Supreme Court has an appellate division. You then go from the appellate division to the Court of Appeals, which is actually the highest court. So he has two levels of appeals at the state level. He could then... I go, uh, depending what his claims are, to to um, directly to the U.S. Supreme Court from the state's highest court. Uh, he would have to show some sort of federal constitutional issue. Might be complicated. I haven't really researched this by the fact that it's a civil trial, not a criminal trial. But uh, I, I am. I don't think the appellate level in New York, from my having practiced law for you know almost forty years in New York, I don't think they're going to rubber stamp what happens. Okay. okay. I, I think I think he will they will take a serious look. I'm not saying Trump's gonna win on appeal, but I'm just saying that I, I don't think people should assume that the appeals courts in New York will through political motivation um rubber stamp whatever the trial court does. The appeals courts in New York are not like Letitia James, okay? Um and so I think he'll get a legitimate appeal. Uh, whether he's successful I don't know. Uh, but you know, it is they are unlike the, the trial courts where people are elected, um, you know, uh, judges are elected in New York. And so there's a lot of political influence there. The appeals courts are not. And, you know, I think that uh, remember, it was the appeals courts in New York that threw out or upheld the throwing out of the Democrat gerrymandered maps for elections. So, you know, you would say, oh, well, it's, you know, a Democratic state. They'll just rubber stamp what the Democrats want. And they didn't. OK. And so I think he'll get a legitimate appeal in New York state. OK. Um, what about the um, I mean, we have visited this topic before, but uh, now that there's action at the state level, let's visit it again. The uh, 14th Amendment, Section three cases that have been filed in Michigan, Minnesota and Colorado seeking to bar Trump from the ballot. Um, the prospect of uh, those cases being successful at the state level and how if they were, how quickly uh, the Supreme Court might take up that issue. Well, if any of those result in Trump being declared ineligible for the ballot, I think that's going to get on a very fast track to the Supreme Court um, because that is, you know, a federal election uh, involves federal law and the Constitution. Uh, so I think that we, if that happens, and I'm not convinced it will, um, and I think it's going to be on a fast track for the Supreme Court because they've got to decide that issue. And and your view on the underlying issue, the idea that um, the language uh, in the in Section three of the Fourteenth Amendment would be applicable in the in the case based on your based on you know the moving parties characterization of January sixth. Particularly given the original intent of that provision in the Fourteenth Amendment to deal with uh, uh, those that were fought for the Confederacy, and like, for example, the Vice President of the Confederacy wanted to uh, reassume his congressional seat. Um, what, what what do you think about the actual uh, 
understanding of the argument that's being made by those individuals in those states? Yeah, I mean, I think the Supreme Court's going to be dealing with somewhat uncharted territory in the sense that you're right. I mean, that was there to address the armed insurrection against the United States. No matter what you call January 6th, it was not an armed insurrection. I mean, no shots were fired, at least not by the demonstrators. Uh, There was a shot fired at Ashley Babbitt. But, you know, uh, so it's a very different situation. You would then have to say, well, who gets to decide what constitutes an insurrection? Is it any state official? Can any state official, can they decide that Joe Biden refusing to enforce our immigration laws and opening the border? Is that an insurrection against the authority of our country? Well, you'd say, well, no, no, he hasn't taken up arms against the country. Well, neither did Donald Trump. So if you're going to empower any local state election official um, or even state courts to make that decision, I think that's something the Supreme Court's going to need to sort through. And I don't know how they're going to decide it. You know, the Constitution uh, sets guidelines and principles for the country, but it doesn't necessarily resolve every every issue. That's why we have so much litigation over what the Constitution means. I think the court's probably going to look for the history of that provision and say that even if all the allegations against Donald Trump are true, that contesting an election is not a violation of the 14th Amendment. You know, contesting an election is not in it of itself illegal. I mean, that's one of the things the media at at the Democrats urging has really put in people's minds that trying to overturn an election is illegal. It's not. People try to overturn elections all the time. The question is, how do you do it? Did you do it by an illegal means? Democrats tried to overturn elections almost every time a Republican wins the presidency. They object to electors. They object to the count. They file lawsuits. They fight like hell to try to prevent to overturn the election. Nobody gets prosecuted for that. So I think the Supreme Court's not going to say, hey, any attempt to overturn an election or object to it is is disqualifies you from running for office. Professor Jacobson, can you tell us what's going on uh, with Cornell Center for Jewish Living? I know that they had threats against them. The students had to hide in the library. Then apparently they were told to move to the attic because they couldn't keep them safe. School was canceled on Friday. Uh, what happened with the leadership at the school? Yeah, I mean, I think there was a two, two separate things. The hiding in the attic was Cooper Union in okay. New York City, where, um, quote-unquote, pro-Palestinian, which really simply means anti-Israel, um, student protesters trapped some Jewish students in the library, and security told them to hide in the attic, which is eerie beyond belief, because that's yeah. what happened you know, when the Germans, when the Nazis invaded European countries and Jews had to hide in the attics. Um, I think that's a really good metaphor here. Um, Cornell was a little different. Cornell, there were threats posted on a chat board um, uh, by someone who claimed to be part of Hamas, or at least used that as a signature, about he's going to go around slitting throats, uh, raping the Jewish women on campus, basically doing all the stuff Hamas did in southern Israel uh, when they invaded on October 7. Uh, and it turns out that it was a Cornell undergraduate student, I think a junior, who posted those. The FBI was able to track his IP addresses and things like that through the chat board. And uh, so that's Cornell. But Cornell uh, has been raked by a lot of um, uh, controversy, to put it mildly, because immediately after October 7th, after Hamas butchered, tortured, 
um, mutilated and raped over a thousand people in southern Israel, uh, student groups protested in support of Hamas. Uh, a professor took the stage, and this got tons of play in the media, uh, in a rally in downtown Ithaca, attended by a lot of students, um, and said he felt exhilarated when he heard of Hamas's attack. Of course, he said, oh, well, I didn't approve of everything they did, but, you know, he was exhilarated when he heard about it. So Cornell has a real problem, and I've been saying this, and you know I've been saying this for many, many years, long before October 7th, that there is a um, racialized hatred brewing on the campus, which targets Jews, um, and which now has come out into the open. And so that's what Cornell, the, the perp has been arrested. He's in federal custody. Presumably he'll be prosecuted uh, to the full extent of the law. Uh, but Cornell has a very deep, deep problem that they refuse to acknowledge. And Cornell administration's reaction to October 7th was a mealy mouth, you know, kind of both sides were concerned about everybody statement that created such a fury that the president had to issue a, a follow-up statement saying, oh, I didn't mean anything by failing to condemn Hamas. Oh, of course I condemn Hamas. And the administration, rather than addressing the underlying problem, which is the racialization of the campus with Jews left on the sideline under their DEI programs, is doubling down on DEI. They said, oh, well, we will, in response to this mass massacre of Jews, this mass anti-Semitism, this threats on criminal threats on campus against Jews. Guess what we're going to do? We're going to beef up our DEI resources on anti-Semitism and Islamophobia. That's how they reacted. And uh, what what do you think uh, happens with Russell Rickford, a Mister Exhilarated by Hamas's attack? I know he's on leave uh, from Cornell. Is he going to be back? Do you think? I think he will be. I think yeah, he will be. Too. I don't think the administration is going to fire him. I think they'll probably uh, give him another leave in the spring and hope by this time next year everybody's forgotten about it. Professor William Jacobson, clinical professor of law, director of the Securities Law Clinic at Cornell Law, founder of LegalInsurrection.com, president of the Legal Insurrection Foundation, as well as the uh, Equal Protection Project. And uh, for more on um, Professor Jacobson, uh, you can look at my counterculture podcast interview of the professor uh, recently, we cover a lot of topics, so check that out, Counterculture Podcast. Professor Jacobson, thanks so much for joining us as always. Appreciate it. Great. Thanks. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's what Chicago is talking about. It's Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan and Amy on AM560, The Answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So it's election today, election day today in, uh, well, Ohio on that uh, abortion ballot initiative. Uh, state and legislative offices in well legislative offices in virginia yep. uh you've got uh pennsylvania. Uh, pennsylvania a key state supreme court race there uh and of course the governor's race in kentucky oh also new jersey you know oh, new jersey and new jersey and virginia always featured in these um, off presidential year state elections and um this was this was really a moment in new jersey 
I just uh, have to play this for you. Not there's nothing particularly compelling going on in New Jersey for um, our larger interests or with an eye towards 2024. But this rally of Democrats that was uh, presided over by Senator Cory Booker, uh-huh. there was really a moment. So uh, Cory Booker is given the usual rah-rah, you know, column A, uh, uh, which is the column for Democrat candidates in New Jersey. Uh, you know, vote column A, rap, blah, blah, blah. And then the protesters came. And then listen to the song, the song that plays over the protesters and the wonderful and unintentional irony. This is what makes America great. The power to protest. The power to have free speech. The power of America. Uh, nothing says we are family like two factions in the Democrat Party screaming uh, chants at one another. <laughs> we are family. Uh, family sounds a bit fractured there, uh, Senator. But anyway, I just thought that was humorous. Al Cross is a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Journalism and Journalism and Media and director of its Institute for Rural Journalism and Community Issues. He's the longest serving political writer for the Louisville Courier General, a Courier Journal, that is, a national president of the Society of Professional Journalists, former. His opinions are his own, not the University of Kentucky's. All right, we won't check this with John Calipari. Al Cross, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Glad to be with you. Uh, so the Cameron Bashir race, um, it uh, seemed like uh, Bashir was going to win comfortably, and then polls, uh, as we uh, were closing into today, seem to tighten up so that basically some of what I've seen, it's a, a statistical dead heat. Um, how do you see this playing out? How do you handicap today's governor's race? Well, it essentially depends on how uh, powerful Donald Trump is at turning out his supporters for the Republican Attorney General, Daniel Cameron, who has uh, made Trump's endorsement uh, a centerpiece of his campaign the last couple of weeks. He's also had a very good uh, closing message of his own in which uh, Trump is uh, just playing a small role. Um, but I don't think any of us really believe that uh, Bashir would uh, win comfortably. I think uh, uh, we looked at the numbers and said, this is a Republican state, uh, plurality in registration, majority in voter performance. And even though uh, Bashir has uh, high job approval ratings, uh, once you start uh, ringing the partisan bell, and uh, uh, attacking him on a partisan basis and invoking the name of Trump, uh, we knew this race would tighten up. And the latest poll in this race shows that uh, the Cameron supporters are uh, uh, voting uh, uh, pretty heavily uh, against Bashir, um, uh, almost as much as they are voting for Cameron, which uh, tells me that they really haven't gotten to know Daniel Cameron all that well. But they know Andy Bashir and they're against him. Uh, so... Uh, we'll see how many of those people turn out. Well, what, uh, yeah. it, it's really the election's really about turnout. Uh, it's not been a persuasion election. Uh, Cameron's campaign has been uh, primarily directed at turning out his base 
and Bashir wants to hold on to uh, the people, including Republicans, who uh, look at him favorably. Is Daniel Cameron getting the black vote? We don't know. It's hard to poll in the state because um, African-Americans are only 8% of the vote, and uh, their sample sizes and polls are usually uh, too small to uh, draw any analysis. Uh, so Bashir, uh, uh, it, you know, comes from um, uh, political, uh, has political lineage in the state. His father was governor. And, uh, of course, despite the fact that it's a red state at, for presidential politics, uh, he, he was able to win four years ago. So he won if, four years ago because he was running against a very un- unpopular incumbent, Matt Bevin. As uh, Mitch McConnell says, Matt Bevin literally talked himself out of the office. And the Republicans thought Bashir would be an easy pick uh, four years later. But the pandemic came along, and people generally approved of Bashir's actions in the pandemic. Now, Cameron is trying to uh, take some of those actions and use them against Bashir, uh, I think to some effect. But uh, Bashir's job approval rating remains above 50. Right. And so that's, well, that's sort of my point. So, yeah, he may have ran, ran against an unpopular incumbent Republican four years ago, but he, his approval rating is over 50 in a state that Trump won by 26 points. So it's a little bit more complicated at the local level than um, maybe outside observers would appreciate. And so how has he maintained even being competitive in this race? I'm talking about Bashir with uh, what I would describe, but I'm a conservative, as an attractive, talented uh, candidate in Cameron. Well, Cameron is an attractive, talented candidate, but uh, uh, Kentucky voters, once they make up their minds about a governor or a candidate for governor, it's hard to change them. And I think uh, Bashir has uh, proven very resilient uh, during his term. He had a couple of natural disasters that sort of reinforced the public approval that he gained during the pandemic. And uh, uh, the uh, uh, Cameron campaign has uh, uh, gradually uh, tried to build up his uh, name recognition and support um, and draw on that uh, partisan label uh, and the Trump label uh, to uh, uh, get past Bashir. And it could happen today. And he's been, uh, Cameron has been uh, significantly outspent, hasn't he, despite the fact that not only does Cameron have Trump's support, but he has Mitch McConnell's support in the Republican Senatorial Committee as well. Mitch McConnell has known Cameron for a long time. Well, the Senatorial Committee isn't involved in this race as far as I know. I mean, but, I mean uh, not, not the Senatorial Committee, but I mean the, the RGA plus McConnell yeah. is what I meant. And, and there's a lot of super PACs involved. You know, the Club for Growth uh, is here. Um, and most of the spending for Cameron has not come from his own campaign, but from uh, those super PACs. Uh, Bashir has enjoyed the advantage of incumbency. Uh, the contributors uh, who have something to gain or lose at the hands of the state uh, thought he was uh, going to win, so they stuck with him. How do you think Bashir handled the COVID situation? Well, I think he followed the advice of public health professionals. I think if he uh, had it to do over again, he would not send uh, state troopers uh, to take uh, license plate numbers at churches yeah. <laughs> uh, and, and put notices on the windshield. Now, you know, this only happened to like seven churches, but it was enough uh, to uh, uh, make an issue of it. And that uh, uh, resonates with people. Uh, I think most of the public believes that Bashir did the right thing, and that shows in his job approval ratings. But uh, uh, people don't like the fact that uh, businesses were shut down, that schools were shut down so long. And we've had a clear learning loss among uh, students on the achievement test uh, as a result of the shutdowns. Uh, not like Kentucky's the only state where that happened, but uh, it uh, gives Cameron some good talking points. 
How significant an issue has abortion been? We mean we certainly see it in places like Virginia and obviously Ohio because they have a ballot issue. But uh, there's been um, when it comes to uh, trying to pick up seats in other states, uh, there's been a lot of emphasis by Democrats on the Dobbs decision. What about Kentucky? Well, uh, it's pretty unusual to see a Democrat running on abortion, but that's what uh, Bashir is doing in criticizing Cameron's lack of support for rape and incest exceptions. Uh, essentially, the Supreme Court uh, punted the ball to the other side of the field, and the Republicans made a fair catch in their own red zone and decided not to uh, move the ball. Uh, it looks to me like uh, 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 Governor Youngkin in uh, Virginia has uh, uh, taken a more politically palatable uh, position uh, by coming out for a 15-week ban uh, with exceptions. Uh, it's uh, real easy to attack uh, somebody for not favoring exceptions for rape and incest because those are um, broadly popular, even in a conservative state like this. And, um, you know, so there's some uh, sort of handicapping of this race that uh, whoever wins uh, is immediately going to be uh, part of the conversation for 2028. Is that your view, too? Do do you see this? Do you get the sense from both parties that uh, they like their respective nominees here and they see them as national candidates at some point in the not too distant future, whoever wins? Well, I think each of these uh, candidates would have uh, uh, some more things to prove before they could really become a big part of the national conversation. But uh, I don't think Jonathan Martin of Politico was off base when he wrote a column yesterday uh, saying that uh, Kentucky could elect a president because uh, Cameron, if elected, will be the first African-American elected governor in America. And uh, that's a pretty good uh, uh, talking point for uh, a party that uh, uh, thinks it can grow African-American support. Bashir, if he wins, uh, that sends a message to uh, Democrats that uh, they need to uh, uh, pay attention to the broad middle of America and that they can still appeal to uh, voters in the middle if uh, you have a candidate with a good track record. He is Al Cross. He's a professor at the University of Kentucky School of Journalism and Media, director of its Institute for Rural Journalism and Community Issues, longest-serving political writer for the Louisville Courier-General as well. And again, his opinions were his own, not the University of Kentucky's. Al Cross, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. Connect with Dan and Amy using the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Dan and Amy, that sound means it's time for in-depth history with Frank from Arlington Heights because there's nothing new in this world. It's just the history you don't know on this date, November 7th, in American history. I turn it over to Frank in Arlington Heights. Good morning, my fellow Americans. (laughs) November 7th, 1944, a date which resulted in my re-election. It is fair to consider FDR as the greatest politician in U.S. history. Think about it. He painted Herbert Hoover as an aloof apple peddler and won 42 states in 1932. (laughs) Then, with unemployment still at 13%, he convinced the country that happy days are here again and clobbered Alf Landon in 1936. Then, despite the Depression still raging, he was able to overcome the two-term example set by George Washington and defeated Wendell Wilkie in 1940. Finally, in 1944, in the midst of World War II, he defeated the popular mob-busting governor of New York, Thomas Dewey. 
This last landslide victory, though, was the closest and possibly hinged on who would be his vice president, as FDR was quite ill. His first VP was the prickly Cactus Jack, John Nance Garner of Uvalde, Texas, who liked his job so much he compared it to a warm bucket of urine. His second (laughs) VP was the agrarian socialist and mystic Henry Wallace. In 1944, the party forced the choice of Senator Harry S. Truman of Missouri on him. Fortunately, today, we have the 22nd Amendment to limit a president to two terms. So far, though, it doesn't look like President Biden is considering a similar move with his clueless VP. Frank, very good. Um, So two thoughts. Um, One is, and then, of course, according to the Tribune, then uh, Thomas Dewey went on to defeat Harry Truman in 1948. Do I have that history right? I'm just... Um, no, uh, you don't actually. Yeah, yeah no, that was yeah, uh, that was yeah. Thomas Dewey was not a good candidate for sure. He he was kind of wooden. Uh, 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 like and, Romney. Oh, and and Wendell Wilkie is sort of an interesting parallel to uh, Trump, right? The the only person not to hold office to be a major party nominee until Trump. Yeah. Uh, although, general, yeah. Yeah. Although for general, although, although Wilkie. Um, you know, it was interesting because uh, so Wilkie came from the outside, a successful businessman, but but he was an internationalist, whereas Trump was an America firster. So it's some similarities and differences. For sure. Yeah. I mean, he was an out, he was a utilities executive. I forget the name of the company that he was CEO of, ran for president, um, lost. He, you know, I don't think he ran a very good campaign against FDR. It was tough, though. Um, but then he in 1942, he actually went on a foreign junket for FDR. And it was, you know, reading up on it, it was really quite impressive. He went basically around the world, went down to South America, over to Africa, then to Egypt, saw Montgomery at El Alamein and uh, went to go see Stalin and Chiang Kai-shek and and various other world leaders. So FDR trusted him enough and wanted to show unity in the country in the midst of 1942, a terrible year. Um, So he did that. And he was very much a, a person who was for the UN. He wrote a book called One World and, um, you know, he was definitely an internationalist, whereas Trump is is uh, of a different persuasion. On that yeah. Front. All right. So FDR replaced uh, Cactus Jack, John Nance Garner. Uh, but uh, the big guy, Mr. 10 percent, is not going to similarly replace his warm bucket of urine. Got it. OK, well, that's a good history lesson. Frank from Arlington Heights. Thanks, as always. In-depth history with you. Frank from Arlington Heights. Listen to Dan and Amy on your smartphone. Download the AM560 mobile app today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Insert Democrat Socialist here. Runs the Democratic House law for 30 plus years running. He's promising this and he's stealing that. Where can you get that kind of money? He's using your house like his own piggy bank, gang, 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 gang. You ought to know by now. You can pay off your house here in Illinois. But you can never keep up with the taxes. Oh, how it's always been the plan. To have a taxpayer pay, no doubt. Not a matter of if anymore, but when. You're moving out. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. That theme music means it's time for our weekly confab with Ted Dabrowski, president of WirePoints, WirePoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. You know, I raised this issue on Friday during our uh, open mic segment, and then I posted about it over the weekend. I was fascinated by the responses on on Twitter from 
uh, you know, those who disagree with my position. I'm talking about this new time off ordinance that's making its way through the Chicago City Council to BLM Brandon's desk, where it will be signed into effect. There's an op-ed in uh, Crane Chicago Business, the anti-business business rag. 120 restaurants, 121 restaurant tours signed the op-ed. The 121 restaurant tours who signed this op-ed have invested in the city of Chicago financially and emotionally over many years. We have created jobs, helped to find neighborhoods, increased the city's tax revenue, and given this great city a world-class reputation for food and hospitality. We built homes, raised our kids, served as Chicago ambassadors, travelers from around the world. Our industry has been under siege for almost four years. Hundreds of Chicago restaurants, clo- restaurants closed during the pandemic. We're now fighting rising fi- uh, food and supply prices, shipping delays, guests afraid of crime and COVID, and the worst inflation in 50 years. With a total disregard for these struggles, in just the last four-week period alone, the city of Chicago has issued us a double whammy with the elimination of the tip credit and the highest PTO, pay time off standards, and employer obligations of any big city in America. Arguments often cited other cities such as San Francisco as a beacon of why these policies work. By most estimations, these cities are recognized to be among the worst places in America in which to open a restaurant. Restaurants make 4% profit on average. 42 cents of every dollar goes to labor. 27 cents of every dollar goes to the cost of goods sold. 7 cents goes to rent. 20 cents goes to everything else. Without major changes, including price hikes and worker layoffs, the Chicago restaurant skyline will lose its identity as the best food city in America. Um, And by the way, that doesn't even contemplate the fact that uh, so many of these restaurants are still keeping the COVID surcharge on your tabs, if you haven't noticed. Uh, this is so interesting because the reaction I got was um, 40, you know, 40 hours, five days of pay time off, five days of sick leave. All the reaction was, you don't care about workers. These uh, small business owners, the independent ones that can't shoulder these burdens very easily, they don't care about your employees. Only the politicians care about somebody else's employees. Only the politicians know how to run somebody else's business. It's fascinating. And as I tried to explain on Friday, uh, the political ruling class hates the small independent operator. You're a nuisance. You go away, good. Hopefully a bigger restaurant group will scoop up your location and do something with it because they can absorb, more easily absorb these costs. And it's just less mouths to feed and less people to deal with. And frankly, they engage in a lot of rent-seeking behavior as well, as you saw during COVID, where some of the big players were very quiet about the shutdowns while the small guys were getting crushed and put out of business, as per this op-ed in Cranes. But it all it's all it's all it, this is the minimum and it, otherwise it's inhumane. And, you know, oh, my gosh, you've, you're worried about an extra t- five to ten days off for me. You don't. It, there's just no consideration. Everybody knows better except the operator. Everybody cares more except the operator who is completely interested in having and keeping good employees and keeping them happy, which is the way that you keep them. Because of how competitive it is, how tight the margins are in restaurants, as described herein. And, you know, they want to be a going concern. That's why they got into business. I I just the the dismissive attitude. And by the way, I'm not lauding the Illinois Restaurant Association in any way, shape or form. Their protestations are performative. They're not really going to impose any cost. And the politicians know that so they can weather it. While they 
get criticism from you know, gentle criticism, and then they get to position themselves as, look, we're the defenders of the employees against those fat cats making all the money in the restaurant business who won't even provide uh, 40 hours of PTO, 40 additional hours of PTO and sick leave, sick days, as required by law. Everybody knows better and everybody cares more. And nobody can start from the premises. They just look at it and say, yeah, you should do that for them. Oh, okay. I'll tell you what, as I said to one uh, dope in this confederacy of dunces I was talking to on on Twitter. I'll tell you what, uh, you run my friend's restaurant. You can be the shot caller for my friend's restaurant if I get to be the shot caller for your business. I'm going to tell you how much you can make and all of the other restrictions on how you uh, go about your daily business. How about that? That sounds you, you reasonable. Up, you up for that? No, of course nobody's course up for that. No. It's just, all oh, what's reasonable? And there are these other regulations. Right, exactly. There are all these other regulations. That's the point. This isn't about looking at this singularly. It's about using this PTO, pay this time off ordinance that's coming uh, up the river to say the larger point which is what the one I just made every direction from every direction. Somebody's in your pocket or telling you how to run your business. And this is just the latest example. It's not the only one. So you want to switch out this ordinance for relief uh, on another mandate or tax? No, of course not. And if you oppose it, then you don't care about your employees, says the outside world who has who mostly particularly the politicians never have to live in a bottom line reality. It's so infuriating. And the moralizing is the worst part about it. Moralizing from a place of ignorance. Is there any more lethal combination? For more on this, Ted, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, good morning, Dan. Good morning, Amy. I think, you know, I think what most people don't understand is that the, the bureaucrats that set all these rules, you know, these, these are not, I hate to say, there many of them are not, smart in the sense that they've never run a business they're not from the private in any sense. sense they're not smart in any sense yeah but go you know, ahead. there might be a few that's why i don't want to be too but you know there's, there's i'm sure there's a few good good ones out there but you know many of them are now socialists so they don't even care about profits uh you know but most most have no clue and so this is really easy to appeal to the public by saying they're going to do some some public virtue of you know we're going to do this uh pay time off but uh, they have no idea what it, what it means to run a business how to how to make profits and you know and it's you know restaurant business is really really tough i mean you can you know that by seeing how long you know some of my favorite restaurants are all gone they couldn't survive yeah and, most uh, restaurants you know, last most you know, restaurants don't last as long as the average nfl player i mean that's that's the reality yeah and so um this is this is a big deal about how how you know a lot of this is being taken from the public sector. Here's what probably people, a lot of people don't understand is that, you know, teachers in the public sector schools, um, you know, they get up to 15 days a year of, of uh, sick leave. And, and here's the thing. If they don't use it, they get to, to bank it right. and accumulate yeah. it for their entire career. So this is just, uh, you know, if you see how, how expensive schools are, well, this is what you're going to do to the businesses. It's going to make it hard for many to, to, to stay profitable. And people forget, too, because of the, you know, state of emergency we were under for COVID for what? How many months was that? How many years? Uh, if they got sick with COVID and they didn't have to prove it, they didn't even count as sick days. Yeah, it's um, you know we see this all the time. All these all these different rules coming from you know it, it's a in the end it's a bunch of uh, basic socialist type uh, you know industrial planning type uh, mentality that uh, they know best. 
Um, I do enjoy this uh, story, another story about Stacey Davis Gates. We had the story a few weeks ago about sending her kid to a private school, but it's okay for her because she's her. She's who she is, and other people are not her, so that's why it's okay. And now we find that she has a homestead deduction uh, for her home in South Bend, where apparently she had a driver's license when she was uh, stopped for a traffic incident, traffic violation, but yet she's registered to vote in Illinois uh, as of 2014. I'm all very, I'm a little bit confused, but I got, I'm going to go where, where she has the homestead exemption because she doesn't have it on her property in Illinois. She has it on her property in South Bend. So that makes her an Indiana resident, which means she is no longer under the Proft rule. She yes. is no longer able to comment on anything that happens in <laughs> Chicago or Illinois because she's not a resident. Yeah. Well, Dan, as long as you're commenting, she gets to, I don't know. Um, yeah, right. Yeah, this is just, yeah, again, again, you know, rules for thee, but not for me. Uh, this is a typical example of that. Um, yeah, she, she's going to play. She's going to play the system. They all do. So I, I, you know, I've got nothing to say. It's, it's, it's not surprising. You know, every time we you hear these kind of things, it's just uh, part of the course for Chicago. And you know, she's that perfect example, starting with the with the school example and sending your kid to a private school after everything she said about private schools. Uh, and here you go. Now she's doing the the same kind of thing on her tax breaks. All right. Speaking of the union, teachers unions ahead. Uh, they gave 1.5 million to lawmakers ahead of this Invest in Kids vote, which should take place what this week. During the last week of the yeah, veto it's, session, uh, this is, it's today, today, tomorrow, and and, and and Thursday are the last three days of what's called the veto session. Yeah. And uh, you know, the Invest in Kids Act. This is again the the nine thousand seven hundred scholarship program that that uh, either dies this week or, or or they extend it in some way, in some form. Um, you know, it's, it's likely to die, but uh, you know, the, the, it's unsurprising that that a lot of lawmakers don't want to bring this thing up and let. They, it's unsurprising they want to let it die because they've received so much money from the unions. Uh, over over the years, uh, the unions hate school choice. They hate private schools, and uh, they'll do everything they can to crush the, the Investing Kids Act this week. Yeah, no, I got the emissive from Illinois Families for Public Schools. They're a good group. Legislators back in Springfield, three more days, uh, which the General Assembly could take action to continue its Illinois voucher program. Let's uh, make sure you call them to make sure that it sunsets. Make the call to sunset that voucher program. You don't want those... Uh, 10,000 kids, mostly minority kids from lower-income families, to have access to better schools. I mean, you know, could you imagine uh, how uh, how damaging that will continue to be to government schools? Uh, Maybe that's why those 10,000 kids uh, in um, private schools, thanks to the tax credit scholarship, that's why the public schools are performing so poorly uh, in Chicago and really throughout the rest of the state, per the report card. We need those 10,000 kids back in the government schools and everything will be okay. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about how bad the results are at the public schools, but, that, you know, something that, Dan, you and I talked the other day, and, and we, we published it this morning just to make sure everybody's clear, how much we're spending for that failure. So, uh, you know, CPS, we've, we've talked about the all-in cost when you add up everything. It's $30,000 per kid. Oh, my gosh. Um, it's 29-something, 20, so almost 30000 But at the, at the Illinois level, across all the schools, uh, our, our total spending has jumped up to about $45 billion a year, and that's 24000 That's the all-in cost. You'll usually hear a much lower number. That's the amount spent on operating. They, they, like, to, they like to, and we've fallen into the trap of playing the smaller number, like 18000 and stuff like that. No, it's, it's 24000 a kid. And, and you know, that's, again, another reason just to continue the Investing Kids Act and School Choice. We're spending you know, so much money, the second-highest property taxes, 
and yet, you know, most of these kids can't read and do math. So um, it, it's amazing how much we're spending now. It's, it's really understanding why everybody's property taxes are so high right now. Um, so what about uh, getting, I mean, just on another topic, too. I mean, we talked uh, the other day about um, the um, uh, number of vacancies. Uh, something like 5,000 classrooms are uh, vacant inside in, in Chicago public school system, and so that's be great places to uh, set up makeshift accommodations for migrants so we can keep the buses rolling and the planes flying and well and and welcoming all the individuals from wherever they hail and then um let's get but but i mean jonathan jackson i thought had a point the congresswoman that this is illinois is a sanctuary state not a sanctuary city chicago's a city illinois is a state they're both sanctuaries so let's start uh repurposing field houses in uh, the collar counties let's you know make sure that the collar counties are given equal opportunity in the interest of equity, equal opportunity to live their values as well. I mean, uh, I would hate for Naperville and Hinsdale uh, and Lombard and Glen Ellen to miss out on this. <laughs> right. I mean, there's all kinds of places that people could be put in. You know, you, you guys did uh, your, the paper you're involved with, Chicago City Wire, wrote about that. I guess that was yesterday. All these empty schools, right? There's all kinds of empty facilities everywhere. Um, you know, it's more like the Babylon B piece where, uh, let's just move all the immigrants into these schools, you know, um, you know, what is it, Manly High School, whichever, yeah, Manly High School is 5% in Chicago, 5% utilized. There's a lot of space there. Same thing for Douglas High School, 5% uplift, only 8% full. You could you could put a lot of people in there. The, you know, the, the heat's already on, the water's running, so uh, those, those places are ready. And, and they're uh, staffed, and they're staffed. And they're staffed, yeah, they got, you know, janitors, et cetera. So um, now, of course... I had a hard time. I wanted to write that piece, but I had a hard time because I don't want people to think you know, we have to be careful that whatever we do perpetuates the problem and actually invites more immigrants. And, and again, you know, we're, we're pro-immigrant in, in the right way, but uh, certainly the easier we make it for, for these thousands and, and you know, tens of thousands and probably hundreds of thousands of immigrants, the easier we make it, easier we make it for them to come here, the more we'll come. And uh, that's precisely the problem. So, uh, but yeah, it would be for uh, for for good measure to have all these uh, places that have their their hate has no home here to to house a lot of these immigrants too. Ted Dabrowski, President of Wirepoints, wirepoints.org, all things Illinois policy related. Thanks, Ted. Thank you, guys. Thank you, and he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. The more you listen, the more you listen, the more you'll know. This is Chicago's morning answer. Morning answer on AM five sixty. The answer. This is Chicago's Morning Answer with Dan Proft and Amy Jacobson on AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. Former President Barack Obama sitting down with his uh, former staffers on this podcast that they have just unlistenable almost but i suppose we must because people pay attention uh obama on the uh, situation in the middle east yeah, he had to get involved he couldn't be like other presidents and not say something he had to insert himself uh well he's got uh deep thoughts on the topic oh, yes. and um here are some of those deep thoughts and so if you want to solve the problem then 
You have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean. That all of us are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? That's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And, and that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. But confining ourselves to our outrage. Um, gosh, is there anything else Barack Obama could have done when he was president for eight years other than what he did? Well, I don't know. I mean, there are things he uh, could have not done, like send $2 billion dollars in cash on a, a, a midnight plane to Tehran, free up about another $100 billion in assets for the largest state sponsor of terror in the world. He could have not done that. He could have not drawn a red line in Syria that he was unable to defend. There's a lot of things he could have not done that he did in terms of destabilizing the region by butting up to Iran. I mean, it's just for starters. You know, if we're going to get into the whole truth business. For more on this and uh, these geopolitical matters, we're pleased to be joined by our friend Jed Babin. We haven't talked to Jed in a while. Former United States Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to The Washington Times and The American Spectator. Jed, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, my pleasure. Um, anything else, uh, the president, I mean, you know, he's got the scars to prove all that he tried to do to bring peace to the Middle East. Um, we mentioned a couple of things perhaps he uh, should not have done. But uh, anything else on your hit list since he's uh, in this uh, reflective mode? Well, I mean, he could not have gone to Cairo to give that speech in which he proclaimed that Islam has always been a part of the history of the United States. Uh, yeah, okay, going back to uh 1794 thereabouts uh yeah islam was a part of the history of the united states we had to go back and to war with the barbary pirates because they were raiding american ships yeah tj yeah yeah tj i think it was 1803 rather yeah tj went over there and well he ordered the first american fleet to be uh sent to chastise the barbary pirates and they did well, he didn't recognize at the time, Thomas Jefferson, what Barack Obama recognized, which is that um, Islamo-fascists are just friends we haven't made yet. And if we could get uh, some of these young men that are members of ISIS and Al-Qaeda, Hamas, if we could get them jobs, then everything would be hunky-dory. Well, everything's going to be hunky-dory. Because a lot of those people are coming into the United States over Biden's open southern border. And Lord only knows the next terrorist attack against the United States, against us here, is on Biden's shoulders altogether. So, you know, I think Obama once said that never underestimate Biden's power to F things up. And, um, yeah, I think he was right in that, if nothing else. Well, I mean, um, you know, there's uh, some professional courtesies there. I mean, Obama, as he we just describing, had plenty of hand in uh, messing things up here. So uh, with respect to what the administration is doing and uh, Republicans on the Hill, uh, what is your what is your view? The uh, separating of the aid to Israel, is that the right play? 
the argument for, that Mitch McConnell is making, among some other Republicans, for a comprehensive aid package that contemplates Israel, that contemplates Ukraine, that contemplates Taiwan, that compl- contemplates our border. What's your view? Well, I think the question of a longer-term policy, which embraces Taiwan and Ukraine and Israel, that's for another day. I think what Speaker Johnson is doing is exactly the right thing, splitting off the Israeli aid and trying to get that through on its own, because he's protecting his flanks. He's not making rookie errors. He's not trying to say, well, we have to have the Ukraine aid, too, because there's enough people in his caucus who are not in favor of Ukraine aid at all. And what he's doing is also putting the pressure on Biden and trying to get you know, Biden to have to say, well, as he's already said, he would, Biden has already said he'd veto a, uh, an Israeli aid bill standing alone. I don't think he'd have the guts to do that. And I don't think the American people, certainly the Democratic Party, would not appreciate that. Um, what's your view in terms of the cultural response so far? I mean, because the cultural response is uh, partly a national security issue. I mean, certainly it's a domestic security issue when you have uh, uh, a, a, a Jewish gentleman killed, murdered. The ruling was homicide, murdered at a pro-Palestinian rally in Los Angeles. You had an, a woman drive her car in Indiana into a school she thought to be a Jewish school. I mean, we're, we seem to be revisiting some of our uh, post-9-11 problems. Well, I think we are, and it's very clear. You know, it's it's worse in not, than the response to 9-11 in many respects uh, because America is not united. It's divided, and it's divided along pro-Palestinian and pro-Israeli lines. The anti-Semitism that's coming out among so many parts of the population right now is simply amazing to me. I mean, it's simply it's identifying with the terrorists. It's like it's like Biden saying, well, we need a two state solution. Right. OK, well, that denies the fact, the very fact that the Palestinians want to destroy Israel, not compromise with it. So there is a lot of evil going on. The Democrats are choosing evil right now. And there's a lot of people like you know, Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and the rest of those idiots uh, who are really propounding anti-Semitism and not really looking to the interests of the United States, not at all looking to the interests but do you of think the United States. Do you think it's going to affect Biden's re-election? I mean, he had Rashida <sighs> might, saying, you I, know, we're not going to vote for you, and there's so many Palestinian Americans who are like, I'm done with Biden. But who are they I don't turn think to? that's really, I, I don't think they're going to turn to Trump. They're certainly not going to do that. And I think more importantly, I mean, a larger segment of the population, the Jewish people are not going to give up on, on Biden because they've been voting for Democrats since uh, Franklin Roosevelt, and they're pretty much enthralled to the Democratic Party. So it's just not going to be a good thing uh, for the Republicans, and it, it should be, it could be. Uh, but right now, you know, the Republicans can't seem to get out of their own way. Um, yeah, I mean, I just you're, you're right just in terms of the times. I mean, uh, but it harkens back to that comment that uh, Andrew Sullivan made a few years ago that we all live on a college campus now. And I say this in the context of the BDS movement, which was born on college campuses and flourishes still today on college campuses, boycott, divestment and um, uh, sanction. And in in Philadelphia, you have the BDS movement promoting boycotts of Jewish restaurants, Jewish-owned restaurants. 
I, so, I mean, it, it is becoming uh, a cultural phenomenon that's no longer contained on campus. As we talk about the academics and we talk about the students, student groups that in some respects are funded by overseas money, which is another topic. But but it is bleeding out uh, into the larger culture. Well, it is. And I want to take issue first off with Andrew Sullivan's remark. We don't all live on college campuses. I think we see an awful lot of employers, especially a lot of very high-class law firms, who are saying they're not going to recruit on these campuses who are just going whole all in for anti-Semitism. And I think there's a lot of reaction amongst the business community. And, you know, there's enough there to say college kids are college kids. They're entitled to be stupid, but there are limits. Uh, and right now, I think there's a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. No, I think the, the cultural phenomenon that you're <clears throat> pointing out, the BDS movement, <clears throat> comes from the colleges, and it's simply based on what these kids are taught. The high, highly, you know, profoundly left-wing professors that lecture to them every single day, this is the kind of nonsense they're taught. And they're not taught the other side of the story, which is, quite frankly, a much better story and much more logical and much more compelling. So uh, where are you on uh, the uh, support for Ukraine? Uh, is uh, the proposition that's been argued by those on the right who favor continued support at the levels that have been proposed, so the next 60, 65-odd billion? Uh, look, um, even if we're f providing this level of funding for the next five to ten years, it is a small price to pay to continue to impose real damage on Putin's army and disrupt this burgeoning Russia, Iran, uh, China alliance. Is that is that your view, or should we start to be more skeptical of what our prospects are and what Ukraine's prospects are for repelling the Russians? Well, I've been writing for a long time that we need a special inspector general to figure out where the heck the money is going and to root out the corruption in Ukraine. And Senator Josh Hawley just said something like that, uh, the other day. But that's where I am. I think we should have our aid to Ukraine, but it should be contingent on establishing a special inspector general with unlimited powers to investigate and subpoena and so forth. Uh, and that would make our, it would give us some assurance, which we do not have now, that our money is going the right place and not into other people's pockets. What's your general assessment of our military preparedness when it comes to all of the dangers that are afoot and, uh, you know, the prospect that uh, you have a larger regional war in the Middle East, the prospect of China's invasion of Taiwan, so on and so forth. Uh, what What is our capacity while we're sort of uh, focused on what we can project as the, uh, you know, the arsenal of democracy the world over? I could talk for hours on that subject. Let me just say that it's dismal. We are not prepared. We're not prepared for war in Taiwan. We do not have and we have not selected in the past 25 years the right weapon systems. We have the F-35, which can't dogfight. It can't even be you know, turned out to fight and fly because it's not a reliable airplane. We've got the Stryker armored vehicle, which is not proof against RPGs, rocket-propelled grenades. And I sat 10, 15 years ago with the Army general who was the manager of the program, and I said, why the hell isn't this proof against RPGs. Oh, well, we're not going to send it anywhere where RPGs exist. Well, okay, RPGs are a fashion accessory in the Middle East. You know, we have not made good decisions in procurement. We have not made good decisions in recruitment. 
you know, we've got an awful lot of people. I, I could, again, I, I don't want to take up the whole darn show, but I could talk to you about how wokeness is destroying our military and how our failure to recruit, which is a very, very serious problem throughout the services, is, is getting into an area where it's going to not be recoverable pretty soon. Well, well, well 25 years, so that spans uh, many administrations, Republican and Democrats. So how, sure. how did we get so far afield in terms of the weapon systems and making the right investments and procuring, procure, procuring the right resources and so forth? I mean, um, it just, it would, it would just like uh, groupthink, uh, institutional inertia in the wrong direction? What, what's going on? All of the above, plus a lot of people who are not thinking like warriors think. You need to think when you're buying something, you don't need to think about, oh, well, is this really going to look cool? Or is it what the warrior really needs? Is it going to make the force? The only questions that the procurement people need to answer and military commanders need to answer, the only question is, does this improve lethality and readiness? That's the only questions that are relevant in terms of readiness and, and in terms of what we need to be doing with our military. Those are the only questions a military commander needs to answer to himself. And if he answers anything else, it's irrelevant. And we, and we haven't been asking those questions with, no, uh, we have not. with focus? We have not. We have not been asking what the warrior needs. We have not been asking what the lethality and readiness is going to be benefited by or reduced by. Uh, those are the questions that have not been answered probably for 30 years. So is that the fault of the Pentagon, the fault of defense contractors, a combination? I mean, who's calling the shots here? All of the above. Look, the, the Pentagon always wants something that's faster and cheaper. And the defense contractors always say, we'll get it to you faster and cheaper no matter how long it takes or how long it, how much it costs. <laughs> right. Yeah, okay. Okay, well, but I mean, that's, you, you know, I mean, th this is something that has bubbled up to the surface, particularly the recruitment issue. So I think people are more generally aware of it, not the, to the level of uh, detail that you have. But um, but, th but that also, you know, speaks to even more concern about what we're spending and where our focus is when you, what you're describing is the reality about our preparedness. Well, I mean, that's really the fact that we don't have people addressing this. I mean, back in the Reagan days, and yes, I'm an old guy, I remember that, we had a process called defense guidance. And what defense guidance did was to take the most recent and best intelligence we had and to look at what the capabilities were of our armed forces to meet the threats. And you develop a budget, a military budget, from the difference. You know, you need to retire what needs to be retired, you need to buy what's, what's new, what's needed by the warrior. And everything else fell by the wayside. Right but now, it, we don't have that process. But isn't that what DARPA's for? No, no, no. DARPA. <laughs> My friends at DARPA, the wild-eyed, crazy-haired scientists, they do a lot of things from their imagination. And God bless them, because they come up with a lot of weird stuff. I mean, this year they developed what they call a warp bubble, which, contrary to Einsteinian physics, uh, apparently will allow travel at a speed greater than the speed of light. But these guys, you know, they, they use their imagination. We had, uh, we have planners, military planners who are supposed to be doing this, military budgeteers who are supposed to be figuring all this out. But they're not doing their job. They haven't for 30 years. And it's going to be, well, it already is a very critical problem in our military because we don't have the resources we need. We don't have the objects to fight 
that we need, and we certainly don't have the people we need. Sobering. Uh, Jed Babin, former U.S. Deputy Undersecretary of Defense, contributor to the Washington Times and the American Spectator. Jed, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Well, sorry to be depressing, but that's yeah, kind of, well. you know, if you, want, if you want good news, call somebody else, man. <laughs> I understand. I understand. We love your candor. And he joined us on our turnkey.pro answer line. It's like a hot, steaming cup of information to start your day. It's Chicago's Morning Answer on AM 560. The Answer. Only the biggest stories, only the biggest guests, and only the biggest opinions. This is AM560, The Answer. Top of the morning, Dan and Amy. So yesterday, uh, Stephen Crowder reportedly got pictures of the manifesto of the Nashville school shooter that uh, were from uh, what they described as a close, uh, as a source close to law enforcement. It seemed to be authenticated when Nashville police responded by announcing an investigation into the leak. Oh, yeah. So it was three pages of what looked like a diary or you know, writings from a notebook. Yeah. Among the writings, this uh, dated February 3rd of 2023. Those crackers go into private fan. Oh, the uh, title of the uh, poem. Kill those kids. Those crackers going to private fancy schools with those fancy khakis and sports backpacks. Wealth with their uh, dad, their something daddy's Mustangs and convertibles. F you little sh- Yeah. I wish to shoot you weak ass D word and your mop yellow hair. Want to kill all you little crackers. Bunch of little F word, pejorative for gay, with your white privileges, F U, F word. Yeah, and she also, I hope I have a high death count. I'm ready. I hope my victims aren't. Um, right. She identifying as a he, in case anybody had forgotten. Gee, I wonder why National Police didn't want to disclose this to the public. 312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. 64636-DA, turnkey.pro text line. Do you think maybe she had, you know, she had this unbelievable right to privacy even after death because of her identity? Because she was transitioning or said she's a he or he's a she, whatever it was? Um, She uh, identifying as a he... Um, so that poem was penned, uh, according to that uh, screenshot, February 3rd of 2023. Um, the school shooting at the Covenant School in Nashville happened about um, s- about five weeks later on March 27th. Three young children, three school staff killed before uh, she was shot dead by responding police. And by the way, she also was lying in wait for the police response and opened fire on the police. Um, On death day, March 27th, that's what she called it on on one one page, with a drawing of a target and a pistol, along with the day 327-23. The day has finally come. I can't believe it's here. Don't know how I was able to get this far, but here I am. I'm a little nervous, but excited, too. Been excited for the past two weeks. There were several times I could have been caught, especially back in the summer of 2021. That's how long it had been under contemplation and perhaps planning. 
None of that matters now. I'm almost an hour and seven minutes away. God let me take God let my wrath take over my anxiety. It might be ten minutes tops. It might be three to seven. It's gonna go quick. And as you said, I hope I have a high death count. She then wrote, Ready to die, Nana signed signed it with her uh, identity name of Aiden. Did she say she almost got caught, caught multiple times? 2021. Yeah. Well, who screwed up? Well, there? we don't know, and we don't know what's happening. I mean, with, the, with those musings um, and perhaps manifestations consistent with those more than musings, I guess you would describe them as plans. Right. Um, who may have or should have seen something. I mean, again, not looking to blame shift here, but just... It prompts more questions, and I guess it's questions. Those are questions that the national police don't want us to contemplate, don't want us to discuss, don't want to answer, and that's a problem. It's been a problem since the beginning. The uh, uh, the vilification and extrapolation of some murderers based on their sort of political composition, their identity, which you know goes to their political affiliation. Those were supposed to extrapolate and make a comment on uh, with respect to everybody who is uh, has similar identity characteristics like white male, uh, anything that would indicate a person had conservative leanings or was anti immigrant anti you know, uh, immigration or uh, or and, or was concerned about lawlessness at the border or expressed anything related to policies that are hot button issues on the wrong side of the medias, then we're supposed to say that person that murdered people is representative of all, for example, Trump voters. Right. We know this. But when it comes to multiple incidents over the last three years of people who are on the LGBTQ2S plus 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 continuum, uh, we're not supposed to read anything into it. We're not supposed to extrapolate. And I don't want to extrapolate. But I want it to be consistent. Well, I mean, they've hid this manifesto for seven months. I want to focus on the specific individual and the specific facts of this case and ask questions and be presented with all relevant information. Since, as you mentioned, the shooter is dead. There is no trial. So why would you keep this from the public? Because what? We can't handle it. But we can handle all the information that is bandied about with respect to some mass shootings with respect to some acts of domestic terrorism and horrors committed by people, but not others. And it's up to the police force to make that decision? I don't think so. I mean, we knew right away after the Walmart murders in El Paso where 23 people died, he hated Mexicans, and he said he was going to go shoot Mexicans. Here she went and shot white people because she called them crackers and their white privilege. Well, perhaps they're afraid that uh, some will do to them what they do to others, which is to say, oh, the people prattling on about white privilege and rich white kids and their their honky daddies with their Mustangs and Mercedeses and so forth. Well, that's the same thing I say out here in Naperville. That's the same thing I say in River Forest and in and Wilmette. And so, gosh, I don't want to be lumped in with a with a mass murderer. No, and nor should you be. Um, but it would be nice if you return the favor. You know what I mean? 
312-642-5600, turnkey.pro answer line. You could also text us at 64636, type in DA, then a quick comment. Matt's outside. Hey, good morning, dear. Good morning, Amy. Um, real quick, Dan, uh, what's the law um, as far as manifestos go? Should they be released? In house? I mean, I get it. I get which ones are released. But why are we even talking about it? You know, like, I feel like we all know the answer. We know why it wasn't released. And for, you know, me, you here to have this conversation, it don't even matter anymore. Same thing, like, when you guys have a guest on who talks about What's going on with the Trump case? It doesn't even matter anymore. There's no, there's no reason to even try to figure out what the law is, if this is unprecedented or whatever. I mean, it just is what it is. And until new, new politicians are elected, I mean, I love your show, but why are we even talking about this? As far as we know the reason, and unless something happens, I, mean, I don't even know why we have intelligent people on the program talking about this. What's the president? Uh, well, yeah, thanks for the comment. But if we don't have intelligent people talking about it, then we just have dumb people talking about it. And that doesn't help either. And it certainly doesn't advance the flag to get better people in public office making better decisions, does it? So we have to have intelligent people talking about it right. if we want to have a chance and we want to equip people with information. We want to uh, have them ask some of the questions that we're asking of people in positions of authority where they live. We're, 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 you know, it's not up to Amy and me to ask every question under the sun of every uh, elected official or every candidate or every person with some authority. I mean, this is this is this is a participatory uh, event, this uh, representative republic. So, yeah, in the absence of doing this, what do we have? Only one side talking? That doesn't seem like it's going to work out particularly well. Look how difficult it is when you are, you do have some oracles of, of information and discussion against the backdrop uh, and, and um, under threat of the imposition of the orthodoxy of the day. Yeah, why? Why did? Why didn't? I mean, Nashville police should answer. What? 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 Who are you protecting? Are you going to tell me you're protecting the victims' families? Did uh, Did I see anywhere where a victims' family said, "Please don't release the manifesto"? No, because I didn't see it. Maybe I missed it. And why? So what? So again, give me the argument. Oh, we don't have to give you an argument. We're law enforcement. No, actually, you do. You have to you have to provide explanations. And now there's an investigation into the leak, huh? Of course. Yeah, of well, course. Don't waste your time. Don't waste your resources on that. Maybe whoever was close to the uh, close enough to law enforcement to get uh, images of this manifesto, um, maybe uh, Judge Roberts, uh, Justice Roberts, can put them on the who leaked the Dobbs case case. Yeah. <laughs> Rather have that investigated in this i mean i certainly understand matt from the south side's frustration but yeah we can't forget about this stuff and we can't stop asking questions i mean i always go back to uh my friends uh, the edgar county watchdogs i just i love their their approach to life in general and this should be at least part of everyone's approach to life who says and what evidence do you have i got two questions who says and what evidence do you have Everybody should have to answer that question in a position of authority representing the interests of other people or with the responsibility to provide for other people, like in a law enforcement context. Who says what evidence do you have? 
Roger, Southside. Morning, Jay. Quick response to you and Matt. Um, last call. Um, you got to speak up, Roger. Yeah, all all we all we read on social media and all we every show you listen, your show, any podcast you listen to, are people saying, "Well, when is it going to end?" Okay, it's going to end when the law-abiding citizen or the uh, doesn't take violence to the streets, but actually starts putting pressure on the people who have put us in this spot. And you know who they are. And I'm talking about the Preckwinkles. I'm talking about the Black Caucus of you know, just locally here. Yeah, of you course. Know, when, uh, when we're willing to say, you know what, I'm willing to risk everything I have to go out there with a thousand other people to stand in front of Tony Preckwinkle's house, for a week, believe me, you'll see you, these people, they will fold up like lawn chairs. The problem is, mm. is that the law-abiding person has too many concerns in their life, whether they be family, jobs, bills, everything else. That's what the criminal is not doing. That's what the, the dirty politician, they don't have to put time into that. Yeah, I got it. Thanks for the call, Roger. Right. I mean, I agree with that. You know, when somebody says, when's it going to end? I don't know. When's it going to end? Wait, wait, is that, that's a question just for me? What, I mean, it, you, I, I'm on the field and you're a spectator? You're not a spectator. You shouldn't be. We had that, um, uh, our friend Rich from Indian Head Park a couple weeks ago when we were talking about the trans issue, interestingly enough. You know, um, how much more do they want? Well, as much as you're going to give them or allow them to take. That's how much. You think there's some limiting principle here, like self-limiting? There's any restraint being exercised? No, so you better confront it. Carl Arlington Heights. You know, I wonder if the police chief's statement yesterday where he said he was launching an investigation, quote, at the request of the mayor, was purposeful insofar as telling us that we weren't holding this powers in, uh, in authority above us were. And that's why he made what seemed to me to be a purposeful statement. I wonder what your thought is. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Hard to know. Thanks for the call. Got Carol. a lot of text messages. Dan Fair question. Amy, that journal is bone chilling. OMG. If the tranny murderer only attended Latin mass, this could have been stopped. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, the FBI is focused on those Latin mass attendees. Um. Yeah, no, so I, you know, may, right, it could be the political class that are that's covering their ass in Nashville, which is a dem town, of course, because it's right. big and full of artists. Um, it's transitioning persons, a mass murderer. Uh, and so, so right, I mean, so I, I, I'm not putting it on law enforcement exclusively. They, they have to report to civilian political authority. So, yes, thank you for expanding the scope there. That's fair. Bill in Cape Coral, Florida. Yeah, I just want to agree with that guy on the south side. We're talking, talking, talking. No actions ever taken. A real quick example, these guys, uh, if you get caught as a, as a service member in the airport and you're out of uniform, you can get an Article 15. And you could be, be the motor one rank or lose money on your pay. These people, these are guys dressed up as women. That's totally out of uniform, code of justice. You have to wear the proper uniform. Anything goes. They've, they've lost any type of uh, uh, structure. There's, there's nothing. You can do whatever you want, and nobody does nothing. We have to start arresting these people, start giving them Article 15. They don't do nothing to them. That's why they're, they're so powerful. It just drives me crazy. But I, 
America. Bye-bye. Well, thanks for the call, Bill. Dan and Amy, Chicago's Morning Answer. Listen to podcasts of Dan and Amy from the AM560 mobile app. Download it today at 560theanswer.com slash mobile. Thanks for listening to Chicago's Morning Answer podcast sponsored by Signature Bank. Signature Bank takes pride in helping customers grow their business and provide unmatched banking expertise, custom financial solutions, and the industry's best technology. So whether you're a business looking for a deposit relationship or needs a ready source of financing, Signature Bank is the right bank for you. Call today at 773-467-5600 to hear how Signature Bank can help your business grow and thrive. Member FDIC, Equal Housing Lender.